Hey there, crypto curious gang. It's time to plug in and play with the blockheads at Blockcast. Strap in for our weekly whirlwind tour through the blockchain jungle where NFTs, shiny coins, and crypto titans tango. Served up with a side of spicy insights and the crunchiest bits of the digital sphere. Let's dive into the decentralized deep end. Blockcast is live in three, two, one. Welcome to Blockcast. This week, we dive deep into the roller coaster ride that was 2023 in the world of cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Timothy Mazier, Managing Editor at Blockhead. Uh, with me... Hi, Tim Han here, General Manager at Blockhead. And today, we're unpacking the good, the bad, and the downright wild from the past year. And we've got a guest with us here in this episode, Kenneth Bock, the author of upcoming book, Decentralizing Finance, published by Wiley in February 2024. Kenneth, what's the book about and who's it for? Ah, well, thank you for having me here. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. Yeah, so decentralizing finance is kind of like a 15-month effort that just wrapped up in September for me. Decentralizing finance actually started as a DeFi book, as in covering crypto-native DeFi from the emergence of DeFi summer since 2019. But then now DeFi is being used in so, sort of institutional DeFi, right? Yeah, as per JP Morgan and... Uh, the MES with Project Guardian. The book is a is a very broad coverage of uh, what I would call is the three Ds. Uh, now it's the digital assets, DLT, and DeFi. Right, and you've been working on this book for the past eighteen months. Fifteen months. Fifteen okay. months. Yeah. So the contract came in in March. 2022 you know before that i was looking into trading doing some arbitrage uh, trading back into my roots as a kind of a trader um, before that i was hitting up growth and strategy for zilliqa and actually it was at zilliqa we were looking at formulating the fintech and DeFi strategy for the company Right? So then we did sorts of partnerships with Xfirst and now FAS. I mean, basically, we collaborated on the first sort of Singapore dollar stablecoin, XSGD, also HD Exchange, which is an RMO exchange. But basically, we were the base blockchain for that. Huh? And then prior to that was uh, L1 uh, sort of analyst and investor. Yeah, my biggest hit was basically being in the Ethereum crowd sale from 2014. I was very, very lucky because I was kind of doing research into Bitcoin and Ethereum at that time. But subsequently reinvested and was kind of very impressed with uh, smart contracts in general. Yeah, so other hits were like Cosmos and Tezos. I mean, since the DeFi thing came along, it sort of really grabbed my interest because DeFi is an entirely new way of doing finance that's based on smart contracts. Right. So the big kind of inquiry or experimentation with the regulated side of things, with central banks and with commercial banks is how do we actually implement DLT into the, the centralized banking framework, which is so complicated. It involves geopolitics, it involves technological risk, it involves different types of compliance and different types of monitoring. Uh, yeah. So that is basically what I'm trying to kind of excavate because again, a lot of the pilots huh, with, with smart contracts in, in commercial banks and central banks are kind of quasi-operational. I mean, to kind of generalize the whole activity of it. And you can see from the IMF MD's kind of opening at the SFF that just closed. Huh? She, she really kind of was quite explicit that CBDCs are here and they are going to move forward. Right, the Chinese ECMY is already in play. 
you know, Singapore has just announced an MOU with China to allow ECNY spending in Singapore. So long and short of it, you know, what crypto natives think is their universe actually extends very much so more on a technical level to what is actually happening to will happen for the masses, huh? for the billions. But that is a much more complicated translation of how it's going to happen. So pretty good timing, right? You've been working on the book during a bear market, so not that much action, lots of time to write the book, and you've timed it to coincide with crypto spring and the bull run in February 2024? That, that's what we're all gunning for, 2024? Yes, we hope so. We hope so. I mean, now that you mention it, I mean, we can talk about the Bitcoin ETF. You mm-hmm. know, certainly that is, I think, on everyone's mind. You know, the Bitcoin ETF is 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 huge. La. It's huge. It's huge in, in, in capital letters, right? And to give you some context, I used to trade ETFs. You see, I used to trade ETFs at Goldman Sachs. This is the the first drop I ever did in my career in the London office of Goldman Sachs, uh, market-making ETFs. How this actually works is basically, as the junior trader, you're hedging, okay? So let's say a hedge fund wants $10 million of banks, ETFs. Depending on the type of order, we go into the futures and the spot market, match the exact exposure using algorithms, because an ETF is a basket, mm. right? So you have to buy the exact basket of stocks that match the exposure of the ETF that we're sending to the client. So we match the prices, we calculate all the prices using algorithms, and then we take the spread. So that is a long story, but ETFs have many advantages. They have many advantages over, say, mutual funds, right? For their efficiency, the ease of entry, exit, holding, so ETFs are really quite a revolution in, in sort of financial products. A Bitcoin ETF is huge news because it's basically legitimacy. It solves the custody issue. It's basically mainstreaming of Bitcoin and crypto as an asset class. You know, once it's an ETF, a lot of in the US is RIAs, huh? registered investment advisors can now start pushing uh, Bitcoin ETFs. It could be an entire sea change from Crypto is speculative to everyone is buying it, so we have to get in and it's part of the whole portfolio mix. To be sure, there are futures ETFs right now. You can go buy GBTC, Grayscale's BTC Trust, but the spot ETF is is what is going to be a game changer because it's simply more efficient, right? Yeah, I mean, you can just imagine everyday guys uh, on their TD Ameritrade, on their IG, clicking on the ETFs that uh, hopefully are to be approved and the effect that would have on kind of the liquidity in the Bitcoin market. Absolutely, absolutely, right? So BlackRock is the giant in the room. BlackRock's under their iShares branding, I think is about 35 to 40% of total market share of ETFs in the US. So when they filed for the spot ETF filing, I think in June, it's big news, right? These are not small players anymore. This is basically BlackRock, right? BlackRock has a lot of distribution also. To your point, Tim, it is about access. It's absolutely about access, right? Through your stock trading app, Robinhood, TD Ameritrade, Think or Swim, what have you. You know, you are you already have that access. All it takes, you just type in the the, the symbol in your 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 app, and you can you you can plug away. Is this going to lift the whole industry then? Because you know, we a potential spot Bitcoin ETF. You will also see more demands on infrastructure, service providers, custodians. I mean, all the back end stuff as well. Right. Right. Yes, absolutely. If we 
think about institutional adoption of crypto, there have been kind of a lot of uh, firms like BlackRock to Fidelity to, J- to DBS, right, locally, whose clients basically want crypto. I mean, you know, they, everyone has heard about it, no matter what the government tells you, whether it's speculative or not. Of course, it's speculative. But the fact of the matter is that their clients want to buy Bitcoin. So these institutions have to figure out Okay, how are we going to get access? How, how are we going to get liquidity? How are we going to store these assets? How are we going to deliver the UX for our clients, right? And absolutely, this, this I think is a very good precedent for all the infrastructure providers in, in the space. But it is not for certain that it will be approved. That's right. It is not for certain. I think the odds are right now about 50-50. Uh, that's really pretty decent. <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> but it's a now or never kind of moment, la, I suppose. Yeah, and I think this one, I'm not exactly a US regulatory expert. Yeah, but it's just that it seems like the SEC is quickly running out of reasons to, to reject and to delay these applications. If you reject and delay applications, there must be some rules about it. And, and I think throughout 2023, we've seen some uh, actions by the SEC against some of the largest cryptocurrency players. Think about Kraken, we think about Binance, think about what happened with Ripple. And Binance just most recently, a couple of weeks back, uh, had to pay a $4.3 billion settlement, the SEC. So, I mean, what do these moves mean for the cryptocurrency industry at large? Is this now uh, table stakes? Is it a, a billion dollars a year to play this game? <laughs> You know, you can do whatever you want. Action comes, you you know, settle for you know a certain amount. Or is this you know kind of like a clean up of the entire industry before uh, ahead of what we were speaking about earlier, the Bitcoin ETFs? So you know, they're trying to just wipe the board clean a little bit. Yeah, no like It's not. It's not a pay to play thing. Okay, <laughs> let's just put that. Let's just you know get that straight. You know, I think the SEC is is certainly trying to bring crypto exchanges in line with the norms of Mm. uh, how exchanges ought to work in the financial services industry. And to be uh, a bit clearer, charges against Coinbase, Kraken and Binance were kind of failing to register as a clearing agency, broker and exchange. These have specific functions and specific requirements. If you're dealing in securities, basically you have to have certain norms of operating. In which may include separation of uh, these these uh, these functions within the within the company to avoid insider dealing and information leakage and all of that. Generally speaking, I think it's positive, right? Because these are things that we didn't even really know before before the SEC and the DOJ went in and kind of did a huge investigation of Binance, for example. I mean, these are kind of different things we have to be careful when we're talking about these things right the four billion fine with binance actually is a money laundering charge huh? that cz is now facing jail time now that actually is i think also positive <laughs> yeah not to sound too kind of governmenty here because you know money laundering and terrorism financing are very serious issues that impact society at large but individuals like you and i very often don't see the repercussions of of, of terrorist uh, financing, right? So I think regulators are doing the right things huh? by making sure that the centralized exchanges and maybe even to come the decentralized exchanges are regulated. Because regulation has to come in somewhere. You cannot say the whole thing is all, 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 all permissionless. You know, there must be some checks. I mean, no doubt there'll be frictions. We won't like it. You know, it's kind of, a, you know, quite painful. But they must come in somewhere. So the question is, is it going to be on the front end, on the, on the interface of the app, 
or is it going to be on the smart contract level? You know, it's much better for innovation for it to be on the front end. If you're regulating smart contracts, uh, then your <laughs> then innovation is going to die already, you see? So it's better that it's on the front end. Yeah, so I mean, to your question, generally, I think it's positive. I think it's certainly sort of a clean-up action. Now that SBF is behind bars, CZ has been taken down, a lot of the risk is off the table. So 2024 could be sort of a fresh start for, for crypto. On the topic of Binance, Kenneth, I wonder if you have any views on like how this whole thing has unfolded. You know, with CZ, you know, maybe, maybe he's sacrificed himself for for the for the crypto industry for a bull run for all of us. <laughs> I like the uh, <laughs> kind of religious analogies here. But go ahead. And then the appointment of of Richard Tang, who has experience in dealing with regulators in all the major uh, crypto hubs around the world. Singapore, and then, Abu Dhabi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you know, I guess keeping the seat warm for, for CZ's eventual return at wow. the heights of wow. the bull market. Wow. Wow. You, heard it. you heard it from Tim first. No, I don't have any particular insight beyond what I, what I read in the news. I mean, I think for a long time there were suspicions that Binance was being a bit loose Hmm. With their sort of onboarding, their ML, they know it's from some dodgy account, but they close one eye just to get the business. I think what the case has kind of proven is that some of it had had some some truth to it, lah. Basically, right? So <laughs> this easy sacrifice. I mean, I no lah. I mean, look, everyone is uh, you know kind of maximizes their own self interest. You know, the fact that he's sort of facing 18 months of jail is not a lot. You know, there could be more. They're pushing for more. I mean, that's what I read today, literally today. He willingly went to Seattle to give himself up, right? Yeah, to settle the thing because you can't escape from the, from the long arm of the, the of law enforcement, right? True, true. Now, what do you think, Tim? You, you have something burning there. No, no, no. I mean, that, uh, I, I guess just... As a journalist, you you always know there's more to it than than what you see. And <laughs> okay, so you're saying there's a there's a deal, potentially. Yeah, yeah but that was yeah. the deal, right? The deal is basically, you get to keep everything else except four billion. Yep. You know, you personally only paid fifty m. Mm-hmm. You know, what's easy worth billions, yeah. man. Yeah, but and I think the way that he reacted to this enforcement is uh, vastly different from the way that SBF reacted as well, who's you know holding out to the end that. I didn't do anything wrong. I was trying to do something good. But I think CZ has uh, just come forward and said, yep, as a young business, maybe we have done something in the past. I'm going to own up to it. We all want the industry to move forward. And I think this panders to the broader public, right, on how you have reacted to some sort of legal enforcement rather than trying to hide behind what you think you thought was right or, or whatever. He's actually come out and say, yep, you know, I'm going to take the rap for it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's important not to conflate mm. the two cases. Yeah, sure. Huh? SBF case is fraud, <laughs> okay? Binance case is more lax mm. uh, standards uh, with money laundering, yeah? which is admittedly that they knew it was going on, but they failed to take action against it and actively deceived regulators about it. So those are two different things. And obviously the fallout from FTX is, is much, much greater. Yeah, so important not to lump those two things uh, together. Yeah, but the way that CZ approached it, I mean, I suppose he's just trying to just get it off the table. Lah. Yeah, I guess to keep Binance as a whole, right? But pass on the reins to Richard Ting. 
So I think moving on to institutional adoption in 2023, uh, we've just finished Singapore Fintech Festival where Managing Director of EMAS, Ravi Menon, you know, in his day two opening speech said that the key components to realise kind of like the next level of fintech or finance is digital assets, digital money and digital infra- infrastructure. Right? And these are all digital assets related. So he's kind of talking about the entire DLT space without mentioning cryptocurrencies. You know, Kenneth, I just wanted to get your thoughts. Could this be the beginning of how we see a regulator taking the lead in terms of shaping how financial institutions adopt DLT, view DLT, use it in their operations daily, you know, whether it's cross-border settlement, tokenized deposits, purpose-bound money, you know, all these things that have been talked about quite extensively even before this SFF. Yes, yes. In short, I am a big fan of Project Guardian and Project Orchid. Uh, not just because I am Singaporean, but I do genuinely think it's the right direction that this industry needs to move towards. Institutional finance is kind of, in terms of order of magnitude, much greater than kind of retail finance. Uh, it's much higher standards. So to the extent that DLT makes sense in, say, capital markets, cross-border transfers, even kind of what are now called MCBDC system Mm -hmm. with uh, Enbridge and Dunbar. Those are two very important projects that could have geopolitical ramifications for the bypassing of SWIFT, for example. In, In essence, a lot of that work requires, say, things like in one of the, the trials with Project Guardians, is about verifiable credentials. So how do I ensure that you are who you are when I'm trading with you in a decentralized exchange? Like that's very important, right? You cannot trade with unknown counterparties in regulated finance, right? So it is indeed the right direction. And, and furthermore, if you look at something like Project Orchid, I can't think of any other jurisdiction to my knowledge that is doing so much experimentation with programmable money. Right? There were a whole slew of pilots with, with Grab, with Amazon, with uh, UOB. Uh, this is just off the top of my head, uh, there was a whole session about it. Now, if you would take this programmable money kind of theme anywhere else in, say, the West, I don't think they're quite ready for this. Mm-hmm. Uh? And this is because of the unique social compact that Singaporeans have with their government, mm-hmm. which basically is that government tends to do right by Singaporeans and does the right thing. You know, this is all kind of quite big news, actually, hmm? with how DLT is being implemented in, in kind of real finance. So, yes, I am a big fan of what, uh, what the MES is. But you mentioned Ravi Menon's day two speech. You, the headline that everyone was carrying was his statement that cryptocurrencies have failed. I mean, he's referring to what they have done or what people view it as, you know, digital money. And he says that they have failed in, in that sense. Yeah, so I think it's also interesting how we have been using digital assets quite interchangeably with cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. When actually there is some sort of nuance there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cryptocurrencies could be a subset of digital assets. Mm-hmm. But you know, generally as we move towards this more regulated climate in, mm-hmm. in digital assets, digital assets become slightly not the privately issued cryptocurrency from a ABC project that you know we we are accustomed to, but rather financial instruments that have been issued by regulated providers or even the regulator themselves? Yes. Now, this is a good sort of point to talk about the distinctions. There are actually three terms. I I would say there are three terms. Digital assets, crypto assets, and cryptocurrencies. A cryptocurrency is something like Bitcoin. A crypto asset is something like Ether. A digital asset is something like the ECNY. But all three of them live on a blockchain. ECNY not so, but there's some blockchain in it. 
Okay, yeah, <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. important to get uh, into yeah, the yeah, yeah, distinctions, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's a ledger, lah. <laughs> yeah, no. Let me let me address things sequentially. I think what MD Ravi basically said is that it has failed the store value function and the medium of exchange function. Mm-hmm. Yep. I personally disagree with the store value function. Yeah, I mean, for the Bitcoin price this year has been going up, you know, and it has lasted for over a decade now. Yeah. Okay. I think there is an argument to be made that Bitcoin is a type of digital gold, a type of non-sovereign store of value where it does not kind of is not exposed to any particular government, right? You can hold it. It all depends on who else is holding it. And again, the fact that the likes of BlackRock are interested in it, you know, says enough for for it as an investment uh, product. On the medium of exchange function with money, I absolutely agree. It's it's terrible as a a payment method. In the same way, we don't pay each other with digital gold, right? I don't pay you in gold bars, right? I pay you in fiat. So I think there are some nuances there, right? Uh, Digital assets, huh? It's a catch-all term, you know? I mean, the government cannot espouse cryptocurrencies. But it can say that cryptocurrencies and crypto assets belong in the, in the superset of digital assets. Yeah, so I think we're going to see that uh, a lot more going forward. But it doesn't mean that it's out of the category, right? So, so yeah, I think that's positive alone. I, I guess another big theme over the past year has been the tokenization of real-world assets. That was yes. also mm. a, a big topic at the Singapore Fintech Festival. Kenneth, I'm wondering how big of a shift do you think RWAs are going to bring to the industry and if the hype is real? Yeah, RWAs are a big deal. You know, this year we saw a lot of T-bill tokenization from Franklin Templeton and a couple other players, Ondo and uh, I can't remember the names, very hard to pronounce. But <laughs> if I to say that, that is, the, is kind of the value of tokenization, right? All the fractionalization, the ease of settlement, the ability for the token to sit on the DLT and leverage on the innovations of uh, automated market makers, you know, staking, all the, all the, the DAOs, all the primitives that we, we, we kind of take for granted as crypto natives, but with real assets now. It is the future of finance, <laughs> in a nutshell, huh? not, to, not to understate it. So the bigger players like JP Morgan actually define uh, institu- institutional DeFi is actually the tokenization of real assets in a DLT. They, they actually distinguish their version of institutional DeFi from, say, crypto-native DeFi. But it's going to, again, take some time to, to get there. Right, because regulation is is kind of all kind of uh, harmonizing at this point. There's a lot of kind of different ways of how this is done, and actually to prove that there are actual benefits from it huh, is is kind of also sometimes not so easy. For instance, the the ASX. Uh, I don't even remember the ASX uh, transformation with a DLT. You know, can a stock exchange actually use DLT to improve the operations? Huge loss, right? Two hundred million dollar loss. It's hard. It's very hard to implement these projects uh, if they're if they're really ongoing. And I, I think this uh, tokenization of real world assets it's really not a new idea. And I, and I think Kenneth, you would remember the six seven years ago, people were talking about it already, right? Like mm. democrat democratizing yeah. access to uh, investments that were previously unattainable for the regular guy. Yes. Uh, fractionalization of assets. It started with real estate, then uh, fine wines mm. and whiskies and, and uh, art. So it's just really not a new uh, concept, but I think the market took some time to warm up to the idea of you know what this technology can do, and for you know kind of the asset originators, issuers to mm-hmm. access the assess the you know the benefits 
whether if there are any of uh, adopting this these sort of technologies yeah i mean again this is another big question uh, let, let's talk about real estate okay <laughs> because i actually personally was kind of involved in yeah. looking at tokenization of real estate the general observation is that it was the lesser quality assets that come that want to tokenize yeah. because you can't get the big because guys if you really right? could be listed yeah. as a read yeah. why would you then go to a secondary yeah. rmo and, sure. and, and, and tokenize yeah. so it's the quality of the asset mm-hmm. it's the liquidity who are you going to sell your asset to you know, all the important questions around the valuation of the asset midway. And that's a non-trivial question, yep. uh, valuation of illiquid assets. So a lot of the, the time that it takes to for, for DLT to be implemented in capital markets is actually on sort of what is the institutional advantage of implementing this, which is where see things like cross-border transfers that involve many counterparties mm. where there are many intermediaries. That is a perfect, that is a perfect. Uh, use case for blockchain, right? Where you can sort of develop an, an overarching layer on a very Byzantine patchworky set of financial arrangements amongst uh, banks, for example. But again, that takes the harmonization and cooperation of a lot of, of financial institutions that ultimately sort of has to be led by the central bank, yes. right? And obviously now that the central banks are very keen on CBDCs, the settlement of CBDCs with tokenized deposits and tokenized assets becomes much more real. Then you can leverage on the power of all these assets being on blockchains and having the, the benefits of instant settlement and transparency and verifiability and all that. Yeah, and, and I think this was mentioned uh, during the SFF as well, right? Interoperable networks that uh, right. can be regulated regulatory compliant across uh, several yes. jurisdictions right yes. this is a global effort it's not it's not a three three four guys in a room want to do something right right, right. this is where guardian onboarded the imf as an observer mm. i think previously they already had the uk and i can't remember which other regulators yeah. but yeah this is guardian Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, uh, Tim, that when I first started hearing about tokenized RWAs and like everyone suddenly started talking about it all over again, I was like, haven't I heard this before? Why are we back at this? I mean, perhaps it's just regulatory clarity on the horizon that is, you know, pushing this. And also it's given the industry the narrative that it's been searching for, you know, throughout the, the bear market and... I think, I think it comes back to, to trust. I mean, yeah. you're talking about, about trust and financial institutions. There is no substitute for uh, financial institutions that have been around for hundreds of years. My point being is that RWA maybe has surfaced again because TradFi is basically on the ball. Uh. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, they've yeah. picked it up. You know, they say, okay, this is real. Let's get our product guys on it. Let's get something going here. And this resurgence of RWA is because TradFi institutions are, are looking into it. Well, stable coins have had their fair share of drama in 2023 as well, right? USDC, the pegging, sent ripples to the market. PayPal's USD launch is set to shake things up a bit more. It's a clear sign that stable coins are becoming mainstream, but stability remains concern. There's also ongoing competition between USDC and USDT. USDT has solidified and gained its market share since the USDC's brief DPEG event. I think it was in March earlier this year. But, you know, Circle, the issuer, is not letting up. What do you think about all this? At- I think the uh, fall of SVP and, you know, there was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Circle came forward and said, you know, we have a couple of 3.3 billion in there. I think it really shook 
the confidence of the market in terms of how a stable coin, uh, which is you know packed to a fiat asset, can be so heavily influenced by something in the traditional finance world. On hindsight, it's not surprising at all. If we look at the basket of assets that the stable coin is backed by, we shouldn't have been surprised. And I think this is also a product of like the interest rate environment. What, what the basket of assets is made up of, right? Which is like you know, short-term bill, treasury bills. And I think it all just cascaded into shaking of the confidence of the market. Uh, but I think we recovered pretty quickly. I don't know, what do you think, Kenneth? Yeah, so a few points here. USDC, okay, let, let's preface this. It's a very interesting differentiation between USDC and USDT. For USDC, regulation is a feature. Yeah. For USDT, regulation is a bug. Okay, let's just be, be quite clear. Uh, after the SVB incident and the USDC DPEG, adoption into USDT accelerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the leader now for stable coins is USDT. Regardless of what your moral uh, position is, the market has decided, the crypto market has decided that it likes USDT better. And to be fair, Circle is dependent on commercial banks for to hold their collateral. If Circle could hold their assets with the Federal Reserve, that would be a completely different proposition altogether. Remember that commercial banks hold, they have central bank holdings with, yeah. with the Federal Reserve, yeah. right? So that's where they ultimately have a kind of a safety, right? Of course, there's other kind of safeties with like say FDIC uh, insurance deposits and so forth. But the regulation has not developed to a point where stablecoin issuers can actually hold direct uh, deposits with the Federal Reserve. That's some color with the stablecoin part. You know, I'm a huge fan of what Circle is trying to do here. You know, in fact, where DeFi is concerned, I really think stablecoins are the sweet spot. I mean, there was this huge, uh, well, I, I thought it was a great debate about stablecoins versus tokenized deposits in, in the future of money. And the audience voted for stablecoins. To be clear, the motion was, can stablecoins promote financial inclusion? If you think about it right now, anybody with an internet connection can basically spin up an Ethereum account or Polygon account and store USDC in in their MetaMask wallet. Granted, there are many kind of teething issues about UX and storing your private keys and so forth, but it's right there. If you're interested at all about financial inclusion, it's right there. It's right here. It's not a pilot. It's real, you see. And, And you can use that right now. So to the point that we can enhance our monetary system, our, our global financial system with stable coins and how to do it. I think that is one of the big benefits that crypto has actually brought to the, the broader financial system to the point that it reaches our mums and dads, you know, not just not just DeFi DGENs anymore. So, so that's just a, a kind of a brief overview of, of the stablecoin piece, right? The, the other conversations around here are, of course, around the tokenized deposit part, which gets us into banking and fractional reserve banking and what JP Morgan is doing. But that whole area of, say, the three, what I describe as a three-way fight between uh, stablecoins, tokenized deposits, and, and CBDCs is also a very important sort of conversation. I try to use PayPal, <laughs> PYUSD. I don't think it's accessible to Singaporeans, mm. but I did look at that launch and think that this was huge. I mean, I think it used Paxos as a service provider, and the SEC later, later came in and mm. said, you know, said some issues around it. But nonetheless, this is a fintech giant that is PayPal that is looking at stablecoins with some interest. 
right? It's saying we got to get in on the game with e-commerce payments, with payments uh, all across the world, and it's better that it's in our stablecoin and not some other person's stablecoins. There are also other things that are going on in the in the world of stablecoins, like uh, Japanese legislation coming through to allow for the likes of Mitsubishi to sort of not issue. Is a bit there's some intermediaries involved, but basically banks collateralizing and issuing stablecoins in Japan, which is the first G7 country to, to do this. I think next year will be very interesting for how Japanese stablecoins will be used within their e-commerce space. So let, let's take e-commerce because that, that's actually the huge use case. Would I pay you in stablecoins or would I use a, a fast payment, a QR payment or a credit card payment? Now, actually, those three things have very different ways that it works, you know, with transaction costs and so forth. And it is a very competitive marketplace for stablecoin payments because in these days, it's basically free and instant already, unless it's cross-border. So, so at the end of the day, I, I feel that it comes down to the on and off ramp, right? From my regular fiat money into whether it's your PYUSD or the Japanese stablecoin, the yen stablecoin. It comes down to how do I get it, right? From my Shopee app or my Tmall app or whatever, can I directly do some sort of bank transfer from my actual account? Right. Uh, or does this all happen on the back end? I don't even know. Right. Uh, would that even be the better way where the consumer does not really know, still makes the purchases as per usual interacts with the interface that he's familiar with but the back end on how it settles with the bank the payment gateway or the the merchant themselves that's the infrastructure that you know kind of needs to get revamped right Mm. Yeah, I mean to the extent that if you can live your whole life on a stable coin, if you get paid in stable coin, you buy things in stable coins, then there's no need to go back to, to the other types of bank uh, or fintech money. I mean, there will be a huge emphasis on say the fungibility of these things, right? Because I mean, what central banks and regulators don't want is different types of money, different types of stable coins. They want one type of money and they don't even, ideally the, the consumer doesn't even know the difference. Yes. Uh, ideally. Again, it comes down to stablecoins being internet native. Think about not needing to put in a credit card number. Think about not needing to pay 3%, right? Think about not needing to share more details than just your pseudonymous uh, wallet and being able to, to en- enable for programmable aspects in the money. Yeah, so I think that and kind of open access with the system. Yeah, so those are things that, and it's, it's still to be seen how open sort of these stablecoin systems uh, issued by banks are going to be. Because Singapore also has uh, sort of firmed up their stablecoin uh, legislation, mm. which I thought was also very positive. Basically, to be considered as a single currency stablecoin, SCS, you need to be a major payment institution and basically... I think there will be some differentiation on the exchanges. Lah. Basically, exchanges will have to label this is a, a licensed stablecoin and these are not, which I think is huge because <laughs> you remember UST, no? UST, uh, Terra, you know? Yes. I mean, consumers didn't know any difference between UST, USDC, USDT. What, what is this nonsense? Don't know. It's just you another stablecoin. Yeah, coin it's just another stablecoin. Yeah, but yeah. it's actually not stable. Yeah. You see, so so this word, nah, stablecoin, is actually very important. Is it actually stable? It's just a meme. You know, does it actually mean anything? We must have some <laughs> framework. Frameworks have yeah. some yeah. laws and, around and I it think, to uh, make it stable. StraightSax and Paxos have been kind of like selected to be part of this effort by the MAS to, to for the single currency stable coins. Yeah, so no, I think it's great news. I think it's uh, it's the future of, of DeFi. Lah. Yeah, if we can talk about it less or so like that. Now let's talk about the future. 
2023 taught us that resilience is key in crypto. We've seen the industry bounce back from regulatory hurdles and market volatility. So what's in store for 2024? Yeah, I mean, it's quite Bitcoin. I have Bitcoin on my mind. Bitcoin halving is happening mid-2024. And now that uh, a lot of the regulatory risk is kind of taken off the table, you could sort of wonder, is the current run-up in Bitcoin price sort of already priced in for all these factors? Probably should be. But I think all bets are off if Bitcoin ETF is really proved. Before this, uh, I kind of told you that I've become a bit more of a Bitcoin maxi. Mm -hmm. Given sort of the way big financial institutions are going to to use their own L1s. Another big announcement at SFF was this uh, GL1 initiative that basically uh, JP Morgan and a few other banks, I keep mentioning JP Morgan, but that's the only, that's the, that's the, that's the giant in the room, right? But they are collaborating with, I think, four other financial institutions and, and MAS to construct their own L1. So they're not going to use a public blockchain. Yeah? So that to me is a bit negative for ETH price. And ETH, basically, Ethereum, public Ethereum, will sort of be crypto-native finance, right? But so it's less of an instead-using public blockchains kind of angle. In short, for 2024, I think a lot of Bitcoin action, hopefully. You know, more sort of progress with the stablecoin stuff being used in real-world situations. And also, let's not forget the, the EU big piece of MICA, MICA, right? Markets in Crypto Assets Act that I think is coming into force. That's a huge deal. That is the whole of the EU with 27 countries and 450 million people. So that's a big piece that will provide a lot of clarity to the crypto market. You, you said that you keep on mentioning JP Morgan, <laughs> but you know, uh, J, uh, Jamie Dimon, he's like Bitcoin's uh, biggest critic, our right? Friend. Yes. I mean, is it is it FOMO? He recently said that if he were the US government, he'd shut down the Bitcoin ETF. They 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 are one of the financial giants that have not applied for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're on a hot take, right? <laughs> I give you a hot take. I think Jamie is is running for politics. Okay. Yeah, I I kind of smell that, and he's not. He's, he's already hinted that already. Yeah, you heard yeah, it so here first. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Strategic. Right. Strategic messaging. With our Elizabeth Warren, Timan, what 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 are you expecting for twenty twenty four, or like what what do you want to see? I, I what I want to see is a, a greater understanding uh, from the market on what uh, crypto assets, digital assets mean for the everyday guy. I mean, you know. Billions and billions of dollars have been poured into the space. Up till now, I don't think a lot of our lives are significantly better with this technology. I mean, you do the same, you put the same kind of money into any other industry, someone's life is going to get better, right? Aside from the guys who got in early, who made a lot of uh, like coins. You, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, I'm still using PayLa, still using a Swift to transfer to my friend somewhere else in the, in the world. Uh, why am I not acting out what I believe in, right? And that's, I think, the product of what I, I'm able to access on my mobile phone, for example. So yeah, I want to see greater UI, UX that is good, as familiar for the everyday guy to access decentralized apps. And I, I think we will see that coming, hopefully. I guess that links to my, my hot take or expectation for 2024. I guess uh, thinking that a major tech company will launch its its own token or cryptocurrency and, and that will cause a major market mm, shakeup. Oh, interesting, nice. interesting. Which one do you think? Well, I mean, there are only a couple, right? Like five of them that, that potentially could do so. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow, that's an interesting <laughs> idea. Yeah. 
Kenneth, thanks for joining us on the show. Um, where can our listeners find more of you? Yeah, uh, so my website is kennethbock.com. Uh, it's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-B-O-K.com. Everything else is, you can find me there. My x.com link, the pre-order link for the book is also there. So the book again is out in February 2024. I'll probably be doing a book launch, physical book launch, in hopefully one of the big bookshops in Singapore that time. Please sign books also. I mean, I'm most active on LinkedIn with posting. I also have a Substack. Yeah, you can find the Substack subscribe link on the on the website. Also preparing a, a course that will probably come online uh, next year. On what yeah. topic? DeFi. DeFi. Yeah, it's quite a comprehensive course. Hopefully, you can use your SkillsFuture uh, credits <laughs> to yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a good to, one. Yeah. To, to get access to it. As well as a lot of stuff that's cooking. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for for having me in this very interesting location. Must take a picture and put the show notes, okay? Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, that wraps up our 2023 roundup with Kenneth Bock. It's been a year of challenges and triumphs, and uh, 2024 promises to be just as exciting. Thanks for joining us, and until then, keep hodling and remember, expect the unexpected.